The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. In the teachings, beginning from the beginning with the Buddha, there are many, many ways in which both the samsaric mind is presented in terms of its qualities and characteristics, the ways in which human beings, we manifest ourselves when we're within our delusion. And there are many, many lists of characteristics and qualities of the enlightened mind that comes forth when we begin to free ourselves of our attachments and false views and all the things that bind us. And I wanted to speak today and on Saturday in the second talk on the one of these lists of characteristics called the seven characteristics of a Dharma person, a person of the way. And there's a kind of a challenge in practice when we encounter these different descriptions of an enlightened being or a bodhisattva. <clears throat> the danger is that we just try to appropriate those qualities and characteristics when they're not yet really ours. It's like trying to put on a set of clothes that don't really fit, but hopefully, eventually they will. It's not really like that. It's having faith or recognizing that those qualities all exist within us, within every human being. Some are present, some are active, some less so. And so how do we, in a genuine way, practice cultivating, bringing forth those qualities that will help us, will make our lives immeasurably better, while the other side of those qualities, <clears throat> their negative aspects, are still active and strong and present, perhaps even dominant. I'm going to draw a little bit on some of the um, commentaries by Trumpa Rinpoche, Choyam Trumpa Rinpoche. He speaks of mixing your mind with the Dharma, that that's really what we're doing, is blending our minds with the Dharma. Which might be a scary thing, like mixing your mind with some exterior, external, alien worldview. But the Dharma is you. It is your mind. It is your original state. So mixing our minds with the Dharma, <clears throat> we can understand as the teachings, such as this teaching. But ultimately, those teachings are just coming directly from who we already are. I thought it's kind of like how an orchestra, this collection of 20, 30, 50, 100 different instruments, all individual, have to be tuned 
so that they can play in harmony. And so usually they tune to the oboe because the oboe has such a clear, distinct um, sound that it's easy for everyone to hear. So every instrument in the orchestra has to tune to that one note so that everybody can play at the same vibration, at the same pitch. So that then as the orchestra wanders through all kinds of travels and harmonies and discordances and that they can do that with that tuning, with that tuning, so that even when they seem to stray, they're not. And if you listen when an orchestra is tuning, particularly with the strings, you can hear that the that the, the tuning with the peg, that you can hear the string moving and moving and moving until finally it reaches unison. And it's as though the two strings, the two sounds disappear and they become one. These characteristics, all of these descriptions of the enlightened being, ourselves, are practices. They all exist within us, but they're practices. Trungpa Rinpoche said they're like secrets about how best to live this life that everyone wants, but strangely we can be afraid to actually accept that this is actually who we are. It is a strange thing. Each of us brings ourselves to the Dharma, but very often as we get close, closer, we pull back, we shy away, we become fearful. Our restlessness, our agitation, our distraction. If we look closely, I think we almost always find anxiety and fear underlying all of these different um, entanglements. And we see that fear coming up in our practice in all kinds of ways. Sometimes we turn it against ourselves, sometimes we turn it outwards. And so how to become, so the teaching of fearlessness and being courageous and confident it's not just because those are good qualities, but because they're, they're necessary, in a sense, to be bold. You know, to, from within our lives, which can be so bound up and troubled, and to hear the teachings and these, these aspirations, these invitations, to an enlightened life and to think, okay, that's, I'm going to do that. It's pretty audacious, right? It's a good audacity. <laughs> the first of these characteristics is passionlessness. And I was thinking of that as living without intrigue. Intrigue meaning to be deceiving, to try and cheat our way. Or we could think of passionlessness as going straight ahead. And Trungpa Rinpoche speaks of this as seeing all the ways 
Just very basic, very elemental, nothing fancy. And that, that those impulses, that basic impulse, that basic desire to be comfortable is to be reduced, softened. Not made so much of that. And so our holding on, our grasping, our clinging, our opposing, denying, suppressing, all the ways in which those impulses play out, they just create a lot of conflict and trouble and tension and unhappiness. And we tend to think, we can often think that our grasping at something that we want is going to bring it closer, is going to make us happier, is going to protect us, is going to keep us safe. But it doesn't. It does exactly the opposite. And even though we see that happening over and over and over again, we can see it happening without really seeing it happen. Or believing and trusting that that's just going to keep happening. But the Buddha said, this will fail every time. It's built into the system. (laughs) It's not because we're not doing it correctly. It's built into the system. Attachment creates and strengthens the very thing that we're trying to avoid. Anxiety and stress, judgment, fear, anger, greed. They create positive feedback loops. Positive in the sense that they, they grow themselves stronger each time. And they're painful. Right? They're painful. Which is kind of interesting. Right? I mean, we know the pain of stepping on a nail or bumping our head or breaking a bone. But why does stress, harsh judgment, anxiety, why is that painful if we notice? Is it because that in those moments we're actively turning against our basic state, our basic nature? And so it creates friction, a kind of friction. It creates a discord. So what the Buddha said is we're born in tune. We're all in tune. A perfect orchestra. But then we untune ourselves. And so when we act out of those impulses to not be passionless, but to be bound up in the passions. And in, in, in English or in Western uh, culture, this can get confusing because we think of passion, being passionate about something, as though this is to say, don't be passionate about things. But it's really a different use of the term. Passions means to be caught up and entangled, essentially in negative emotions and strong emotions that are overpowering, that take over our mind and body that basically dictate or appear to dictate to us. So to be passionless is to be calming and quieting down those impulses. So when we act out of them, it's self-fulfilling, it's self-affirming. And it just strengthens the whole cycle. And that storminess the highs and lows that inevitably it brings, we can, we can misperceive as being alive. 
right? The lows kind of suck. But if need be, we'll take them for the highs. And so it's a kind of false sense of aliveness. And so we practice releasing our grasp, letting go of our clinging, of not attaching to things, of detaching, which means to not be bound up, to untie that knot. That's how we practice coming into peace, calming the conflict, facing what appears difficult. And when we practice letting go, it's a little bit of magic, simple, ordinary magic. It's a sleight of of the mind's hand because we seem to be holding on to something. There's something that we want. There's something we don't want. We're holding on. We see that. We're pushing it away. We see that. When we relinquish, right? it's as though our grasp releases. That object is liberated. It appears that it goes away somewhere. It's no longer present. So it seems like it, it does all that. But when we look closer with the mind of wisdom, we see that, that it's all an illusion. That when we grasp at an object, the object is just itself. That we don't cling to a person or a car or a, a look or a status. I mean, how do you cling to those things? We're clinging to or, towards it or to something that we want that thing to give us. But where is that thing that we want to get or have gotten and don't want to lose? And so when we sit as we and practice as we are this week in Sishin and encounter all the ordinary moments of highs and lows, discomfort, tiredness, very ordinary stuff, nothing particularly fancy. But they're difficult, right? Because you're stuck with them. And you did it. You did this to yourself, right? We do this to ourselves. So in that sense, we got what we're asking for. And because we're stuck with it, there it is. There's nowhere to go. We develop the capacity. We begin to see, oh, I can actually do that. I can sit in the presence of this. I can face this. Honestly, I can watch my mind and the desires that arise in the presence of this as I try to avoid it or I try to hold on to it, as I distract myself from it, as I fall asleep to it. And we have to see that, it seems, generally speaking, for most of us, we have to go through that a fair number of times. Thousands, millions, (laughs) until we actually begin to see what we're in the midst of. We begin to recognize. We begin to gain understanding. So to sit with ordinary pain or discomfort or tiredness or judgment without loving it, without hating it, that's it. Very simple. It's a simple task. Don't love it. Don't hate it. Don't name it. Don't ignore it. 
We don't need to dislike what seems to have sharp edges, and we don't need to fall in love with what is all sweet and chewy. There's another way, which is not what we think it's going to be. I remember when I would listen to Don Roshi talk about, you know, the highs and lows falling away, and I thought, so is it just sort of bland? You know, dull? It's not. We don't have to look very hard into our ancestry to realize these, our ancestors are not bland, dull types of beings. <laughs> Just let each thing be in its own way. Just. And something that would seem so simple, and is actually, can be like climbing a mountain of thorns. So mix your mind. Blend your basic state with that which appears before you. That's what we're doing. It appears without love and hate. It appears without judgment. It appears just in its own basic state. Blend your mind with that. Tune yourself to that. I thought of this characteristic as a life of intrigue, you know, like being a spy, when we're constantly, you know, negotiating, figuring out, you know, who's the enemy, who's our ally, how do I get the gold, how do I not get caught. All of that negotiation seems very exciting, right? And within our minds, of course, we're in charge. So you write the script. You can be the hero every day. But, you know, when we actually watch a movie about such people, they don't have love in their life. There's no time for that. They can't trust anybody. And you might be wary about trusting them. They're always running to or from danger. In the movies, they don't even sleep <laughs> or eat or shit. They don't do any of the normal stuff. And perfectionism, the illusion of perfectionism is, perfectionism is kind of like that. No rest for the weary. There's no end. There's no, there's no climbing that mountain. There's no crossing that finish line. It's a tyranny. It cannot succeed. It cannot succeed. We cannot succeed in our lives as a Dharma person bound to that false, dangerous view of perfectionism. The second characteristic is contentment. So, of course, with passionlessness, the, 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 what we're trying to, to uh, relieve ourselves of is being bound up, right, in love and hate, likes and dislikes. In contentment, we're dealing with our discontent. And so I think of this as all things, everything is sufficient in its own way. Trungpa said, you don't have to expand yourself to make yourself bigger. Instead, you are contained in your own existence. You appreciate what you have and rejoice in it. Enough is enough. This is enough. Contentment. If you need more, 
of something, if you need less of something, if you need to shift or change. All of that can occur within contentment. Contentment is, is a state of no conflict. We're no longer in conflict with ourselves. We don't have to expand ourselves and prove something. We don't have to retract ourselves to prove that enough is enough. We can succeed, we can fail, we can stand, we can fall. That's one of the things that happens in training. If you stick around long enough, you'll fail. You'll make mistakes. If that hasn't happened to you, see somebody in the training office. We have to do that. And we have to do that together. We, it, it does, it's no good if it's done in private. And we have to realize, break that tyranny of perfectionism. Realize, is, can be, is being you enough? Can that be enough? Because that's what you got. So if that's not enough, you have a problem that there's really no solution for. So to be enough, which has to include everything that we already are and what we do, which doesn't mean it's all good. Sometimes it's not good. Can we be okay with that? Not complacent, not uncaring, willing to take responsibility, Attending to what needs to be attended to, correcting, shifting, letting go, changing when need be. But can we do that from within enough? Each is sufficient in its own way. That, just logically, we can do. You can do. You can be you, right? That's what we were each given in this life to work with, to practice with, to follow this path with. We weren't given another one, a different one. And that includes everything, includes our karma, includes what the world has done. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the dis-ease of the mind. And so accepting things as they are, and that the, 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 the you know, the, the ground zero of all of this is, is ourselves. That's where we're developing the capacity to be in this world, to be with others, within sanity and madness, within love and hatred, without just becoming, again, the very thing that we're trying to heal to live from sufficiency rather than a sense of personal impoverishment. You know, I was thinking samsara is kind of like living in a casino, which I've never been in, so this is purely theoretical. <laughs> so do with it what you will, but imagining. Noise, excitement, right? Fresh oxygen, so you always feel alert and awake, ready to go, keep going, keep going. But there's nowhere to rest. There's nowhere to have a quiet meal. There's no one to trust, really. You can't trust your fellow players. They're all after your stuff. 
and you're after their stuff. And anything we win today, probably going to lose tomorrow. That's, that's the game. That's the way the game's been set up. And so within contentment, if you want to work towards something, work towards something. If you accomplish it, be satisfied with that. I remember when I was living in New York City, working in a restaurant, and the owner's son was a wonderful guy, um, very young, very young, and I was applying for schools to, uh, to uh, be in music school. And I got into a school, but I didn't get into the school that I really wanted. So I told, told him, this young person, that I had gotten to the school, and he was so happy for me. He was so delighted. He was way happier for me than I was. Because I was chewing on what I didn't get, what I wanted and didn't get. He was just happy for what I had. I noticed that. I did notice that. I felt ashamed, embarrassed, that he could so innocently, so genuinely, spontaneously have that delight for me, and I couldn't have any of that for myself. So if we want to accomplish something and can, then to be satisfied that we know something about how to do that. If we work towards something and don't accomplish it, can we be content with that? Can we be content with not having things not always go our way, not always getting what we want? Because that's built in too. And the Buddha's teaching in, in the path is a radical invitation to live in the actual world we're in, not our fantasy world, not the world we should be living in, not the world we would be living in if everybody would just, if you guys would just do what I need you to do and cooperate according to my worldview and desires, then I'd be happy. <laughs> well, we know that doesn't happen. So can we find our enlightenment and our peace and our compassion within the world that we're actually in, which means this world, this world? That's radical. And do all that we can to make it better, to make it a little bit easier for everybody. So contentment is never complacency. It's not being self-satisfied in a false way. It's being at ease. And so to be contented with our practice while we are diligently practicing and developing and seeing all that we would like it to be more. Developing our meditation, developing our compassion, developing our ability to just be. Contentment is to walk with ourselves, to walk with yourself, to sit with yourself, to go along with yourself. And of course, what can, what can make this a little tricky is how to be contented while suffering. Right? There's the kicker. How to be contented while suffering.
I was never very good at that. <laughs> no, no, I was not. <laughs> and I don't say that as an encouragement to follow my example. <laughs> Where does that contentment come from while suffering? Because it's a real thing. It's not just imaginary. Imaginary suffering. We're actually experiencing something that is difficult, that is hard, that is painful, that is binding, that has consequences, that has history. Well, we have to have faith in ourselves that enough is enough, that this is what I can do. So trust your understanding of the Dharma, your capacity to practice it, and let that be enough for this moment. Not forever, in the sense that there's nothing more to learn, but for now, because you're facing something right now, let your understanding, your capacity to practice the Dharma be sufficient for that. And then let go of any bargaining that if you practice sincerely and without like and dislike, you'll secretly get what you want. Right? That pain, that discomfort, that suffering will go away. It may not. It often doesn't. Not then. Not now. Can we be okay with that? Can we have faith that the Dharma is true? That you have a path? There were lots of times where I struggled mightily with that. And what helped was in the moments we were driven by despair, I started to think about my options. Okay, what are my options? <laughs> what are my ways out, is what I was thinking. Right? Where could I go? What could I do to get away from this? And I realized nothing. Nowhere. That's what. I already knew that. Because that's what I came knowing. And that was enormously helpful. Because it just brought me back to where I needed to be. You are on the path of the Buddhas. Hallelujah! What did you do? How did you accomplish that? We should throw a party. This is our party, actually. (laughs) You're endowed with Buddha nature. You didn't have to do anything, right? You didn't have to fill out an application. You didn't have to like take a test. You didn't have to compete. You are endowed with Buddha nature. And you know that. You know that on some level. You know that. And you must be trusting that because you're here. To be on a true path, even when confused, even when struggling, means you're not lost. You're on the path. This is what it looks like right now. And I know it can be hard to trust that because we think, if I was on the path and the path was true, this wouldn't be happening. Says who? Who said that? Whoever said that? We make up these rules. We make up these ideas that we want to be true. And then when they don't be true, we think something's wrong. Rather than let go when, when our idea meets the reality of what practice is, we should yield, release the idea, and enter into that true thing.
And then the third is to have few, few activities, to live simply. There are seven of these, so I'm, I'm only going to do a few today. But to live simply, I think of it this way. I mean, think about, you know, as human beings, we tend to think of ourselves in rather special ways. <laughs> but we're, we're creatures, we're animals, we're part of nature, just like everything. We belong here just like everything. Everything has evolved to be in its world, in its environment, to know how to do that. It comes with what it needs. It has inner wisdom to know how to <clears throat> live. All living things are this way. And in that way, all living things live simply because life is, in a way, is expensive. <laughs> it costs a lot, right? And for, for almost all living things, every day is, you don't know. You don't know what today is. Outside the human realm, things don't really go to sleep in the way we go to sleep. Go to sleep in the sense that as though we're going to live forever, as though we don't have to pay attention, as though we're in control, we can predict the future, we'll die as we hope we will. Only human beings create unnecessary and burdensome actions. Unnecessary. So much it's unnecessary. All the while, life is fragile and precious and wondrous and fleeting. And everything in the world, in the beyond human world, turns everything it encounters into living and thriving. Even plain is just for the pure and simple pleasure of playing. There's no credits, no status. In reciting the Sutra of Great Compassion, we recognize that our activities are wondrous in their simplicity, arising from simplicity because of their simplicity. And think of simple, simple as being uncontrived, not burdened, not ornamented with unnecessary things. Because everything we do sets something into motion. Every action creates karma. Every com commitment, every engagement, every obligation is a living thing that has to be given energy and time and concern. It occupies our mind. It, it requires energy. And commitments and obligations are really important. I mean, that's what makes this work. That's how we can practice, how we can be of benefit to the world. And what all that means is just we should choose wisely our commitments, our obligations, the karma that we create. We should create it knowingly. Is it worth your precious life? Some things are just not worthy of our time and energy. They bring little benefit or bring negative benefit. Some things are worthy, but they may take vital energy away from things that are more important. When I was applying for, for music school, I realized a little late that after having spent most of my life playing the flute, that really I was a violinist. Oops. <laughs> That's what I should have been playing all along. 
I knew it in my bones. I knew it. It just took a long time to realize it. And I knew that if I picked up a violin, I would love it. I would love everything about it. I would love the way it felt and the way I held it. And so I started to study the violin. And my partner, when I was living in New York City, would and she would just see me go over and take it out of the case, and she would say, I'm going, bye. She wouldn't, because, you know, when you're learning the violin, it doesn't sound good. <clears throat> so when I came into residency, I had given up. I was no longer pursuing my musical career as a flutist, so I thought, okay, I'll study the violin. Great opportunity. A great thing to do. Worthy of my time. And so I started to do that, and then I realized... It is such a good thing, and I would so love to do this. But there are other things that are more important. And to do this, I'm going to have to take time away from those things, and I don't think that's what I want to do. It's a choice. Trungpa said, instead of holding your discipline or your mindfulness, when we don't live simply, we can just go from A to B to Z. If you don't like tea, drink coffee. You don't like coffee? Have a Coke. If you don't like Coke, have some scotch or tequila. You can involve yourself in constant activity. Sometimes you may not even know what you want, but come up with something just to stay occupied. He says, when we're, you're too chummy with the world, this can be endless. Too chummy, too many things, too many interesting doors to pass through. And it's, you know, for people who, are, who love life, who are interested in things, who are excited by things, who love to learn, who have lots of interests, all good things, how do we hold that? How do we hold that? Because you, you don't get everything. You can't do everything. Right? What are the most important things? You have to choose. I have to choose. So that we can, what? Live deeply live well, live awake, live together. To be mindful is to know where you are, to know what you're doing, to know what you're giving your energy to, and making that stronger. Being mindful is to know where you are, what you're doing that you don't need to be giving energy to, and letting that fall away. Sounds a lot like Sashin. To be sufficient in your own way. To free yourself of the constant, endless tether to be being bound by loving and hating, liking and disliking. Which doesn't mean we don't have likes and dislikes. It just means not being tethered, not being bound. Having a desire rise, you choose. Is this something you want to strengthen? Is this something you want to let pass away? You have that choice. But having that choice, everyone has a choice. Practicing allows you to actually live that choice. We can see that we have a choice, but not actually have the strength, the inner strength, to not follow that desire. Practice changes that. Dogen says, this practice accumulates over months and years and keeps going beyond the practice of months and years of the past. When the self is about to drop away, when you're letting go, 
The skin, flesh, bones, and marrow affirms this dropping away. Everything lets go. The nation, the land, the mountains and rivers also affirm this dropping away. Everything we then see is practicing non-attachment. When you intend to get to the dropping away place, this intention itself is a manifestation of the true Dharma. So, at this very moment, that expression is actualized without being waited for. Your self-nature, who you really are, being sufficient, is actualized without needing to wait for it. Although this is not an effort of the mind or body, it's just Buddha nature, a spontaneous expression arises. So when we practice, when we tune ourselves, blend our minds with the Dharma, everything comes into harmony with that. Bodhidharma said, when we don't understand, then everything that is actually true seems false. The more we understand, the more we see that everything that appeared false has truth in it, is true in and of itself. And then Dogen says, when this is alive, you will no longer feel unfamiliar or doubting. We'll be at peace, at rest, at home, no longer wandering. And so to contemplate these characteristics, right, these teachings are teaching us about what we have within us that will help us. Right? They're not just rules to take on because somebody said so. These, these practices, these qualities will help us to do the thing that we have set out to do. So let's have faith in that. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, Dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.